And now I wanted to go, final topic, and I wasn't sure if I was going to get to this, but looks like I am. So this is to do with Japan. And I found this article, which was by a guy called Robert H. Wade. He is a professor of global political economy at the London School of Economics, New Zealand citizen, worked at the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex University. He worked at the World Bank. He worked at the US Congress. He was at Princeton University and at MIT and Brown University. So he's got some credentials in economics and political economy. So this is looking at Japan in particular and Taiwan and Korea. And why did those countries end up becoming developed, prosperous, first world countries? when other countries did not. Of course, the general IMF World Bank policy is with, say, developing countries, and let's just typically think South America, is they would say to them, you guys are in trouble, we gave you a loan, you haven't repaid it. What you've got to do is sell off your public infrastructure to multinational corporations. You've got to let them come in and buy all of your good stuff and you can then use that money to pay off your debt you have to reduce your social services and you you know you cannot put in any sort of trade barriers so you might want to start a manufacturing sector but you can't put in a trade barrier to protect that industry in its infancy while it's trying to get up and running so that makes it impossible for these countries to develop industrial industries of manufacturing or high tech because you can't just go from zero to competing against the existing players. You need some protection. And the World Bank and the IMF just don't allow these countries to do it. They ban them from protecting these industries. And that's the secret to developing an industry. And so anyway, the question is, how did Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, end up, and to some extent also Singapore, Hong Kong, how did these countries break through and and actually manage to become successful? Cheap labour, wasn't it, at the time? So, well, it's a combination of things, Joe, but the the narrative that would like they'd like to tell you is that it was liberal-minded free enterprise that allowed these countries to succeed. Cheap labour, didn't spend much, relied on cheap labour and therefore undercut everybody to build up an industry is, is kind of, you know, one story, for example. But that's not what happened. So in this article, and again, it will be in the show notes for the patrons, how did they do it? So I've highlighted bits from this article, which is going to take me 10 or 15 minutes to go through and paint this picture. So... Abstract. Few non-Western countries have reached the general prosperity of Western Europe and North America. Just about all of the countries which were in the periphery in 1960 remain in the periphery today. The clearest exceptions are in capitalist Northeast Asia, namely Japan, Taiwan and South Korea, and you could add Singapore and Hong Kong to that. So how did they escape the periphery? How did they do it? And he says here, 
The Northeast Asian countries remain among a still smaller set of non-Western countries which have developed mostly indigenously owned firms across a broad range of major global industries. And they're able to act as first-tier suppliers to Western multinationals. So in these countries, they're locally owned and operated and they're able to compete. And the types of industries that they're in includes chemicals, petrochemicals, electronics, steel, shipbuilding, cars, car parts, and more recently biotech, advanced semiconductors, nanotechnology, and even space exploration. So these countries are located some 9,000 kilometres across the Pacific from the world's biggest and most innovative market, namely the USA. While next door to the USA, Mexico has languished, nowhere near achieving what these countries did. So how exceptional is the economic performance? Um, How many non-Western countries have reached the general level of prosperity of Western Europe and North America in the past two centuries? And in this article, he says fewer than 10 countries have managed to do it. And there was a World Bank study in 2013 that confirmed this conclusion. It identified 101 countries in 1960 as middle income and found that of those, only 13 reached high income almost five decades later. So 101 countries, only 13 managed to do it. And there's a table there which shows the average income of countries in 1970 as a percentage of US average income. And then it shows their average income in 2010, so 40 years later, again as a percentage of US income. So take, for example... Taiwan. In 1970, the average income in Taiwan was 20% of US average income. And 40 years later, 40 years later, Taiwanese reached the point where the average income is 80% of the US income. So it's an amazing performance. Japan was 50%, now it's 70%. Uh, South Korea was 10% in 1970, 10% of the American wage, average wage. And then 40 years later, the average South Korean was 70% of the average American. Whereas you look at countries like India, it was 5% and now it's only 10%. Brazil was 15, now only 30. So that's the sort of progress that they're talking about. And this article says that there seems to be some sort of glass ceiling or some trap that stops countries progressing through. And the next section discusses the causes proposed by analysts writing in mainstream economics, often called neoliberalism. So by the 1980s, when Northeast Asia's rise began to attract attention, most economists viewed their subject through the lens of neoliberalism. So they looked at these successful countries, most economists, and said, oh, that's the free market working in these countries. So neoliberal philosophy says that the market is the best institution for growth and liberty. And even where there are market failures, you're best just leaving things untreated because the cost of correcting them through state intervention is is dangerous. And 
they look for a maximum degree of openness to the international economy and maximum integration. And the idea that governments would curb competition in the interest of helping some firms and industries while they're sort of getting themselves organised, that's not part of the formula. So the World Bank's 1993 book called The East Asian Miracle proves this thinking. It examined the causes of success in eight high-performing Asian economies and the book argues that openness to international trade based on largely neutral incentives was the critical factor in their growth, basically saying because they were open to trade, that's why they succeeded. And, and this sort of confirmed the whole Adam Smith neoliberal argument and, uh, and, and basically the World Bank promoting market liberalisation pointing to these countries as success stories. But according to this paper, the writer says that's not the case. And it's a far more interesting answer than that. And it turns out that the answer is closely related to geopolitics of Northeast Asia and the United States. Beginning in the late 19th century, there were three orders in East Asia. So we had Japan with its, basically Japan colonised Korea and Taiwan. And the Japanese colonial government treated Korea and Taiwan as offshore farms, mines and industries, and they were closely integrated. So by 1940, somewhere between 50 and 70% of Korean and Taiwanese children were in elementary school. And all three countries were more homogenous in terms of ethnicity and religion than most other countries. So that's interesting for starters that Japan colonised Korea and Taiwan and basically Japanesed them and their cultures became very close and education was a big part of what was going on. Second area was Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. So we had the colonialists transform the economy, except for Hong Kong, into commodity production for Western markets. So thinking sort of Indonesia, for example, we had the Dutch had colonised Indonesia and basically... Spice market. Yes, and plantations, rubber, rubber, stuff like that. Big landlords, an emphasis on single crops and, and a, a landowning class. So in those sorts of countries, colonial governments was more passive So the Dutch were passive in the sense of accepting the incumbent landed elites and allowing them to just do what they wanted to do, provided the plantations were operating. So in those countries, by 1940, only about 2% of children were in elementary school in the French colony of Vietnam, for example. So whereas Japan, when it colonised Korea and Taiwan, had 50 to 70% of children in elementary school, France, when it colonised Vietnam, only had about 2% of children in elementary school. And then the third area, so we had Japan with Korea and Taiwan, that's one area. We had these sort of colonies with plantations, that was the second area, and then China, different case altogether. So turning back to Japan, Japan was forced in the mid-19th century to do stuff 
For some 250 years before the mid-19th century, Japanese rulers isolated the country. And then in 1853, Commodore Perry of the US Navy sailed into Edo, which is now Tokyo Harbour, with a fleet of warships and demanded that Japan open up to American commerce. Nothing's changed. 1853, nearly 200 years later, they're still doing it. Sailed hey, they learned the, it from the British, come on. Yeah. Sailed in and said, except the Americans didn't want to occupy, they just wanted their companies to operate. They just wanted free trade. Yeah. So he sailed into the harbour in 1853 and demanded that the Japanese open up their economy. So his visit sent shockwaves through the Japanese country's leaders who feared that America might take Japan as a colony because they had just watched what had happened to China and thought, well, don't want that happening to us. Are we next? So the Japanese government responded with wholesale reforms to create a centralised state and national identity as the basis for a strong military. And they had this thing which was if we take the initiative, we can dominate. If we do not, we will be dominated. So they saw the writing on the wall and got their act together. So the Meiji Restoration of 1868 launched a frenzy of industrialisation and militarisation that lasted several decades and had a real developmental mindset that emerged. So there was a big push in state capacity. They sent teams of officials around the Western world to investigate ways to organise a modern society such as tax system, post office, railroad, army, parliament, judiciary and the like, and then they implemented the best models that they could at home. So Japan militarised so fast and effectively that in 1894-1895 its navy defeated China's and a decade later defeated Russia's. And this sent a shockwave through Western governments because for the first time in the modern era, an Asian state defeated a European state. So Japan went on to become the first non-Western country to catch up with the West in broad measures of production structure, military strength and mass living conditions. So a combination there of, of culture and also pressing need, having seen what had happened to China and not wanting to succumb to the same fate. So after the war, Japan continued to be ruled by this developmental mindset which had been sort of institutionalised during the Meiji, the Meiji Restoration and in the build-up to the war. And a similar mindset was also institutionalised in Korea and Taiwan. Let's read on here. So basically also the developmental mindset emerged from the combination of a few factors. Lack of natural resources. So, above all, land and energy. Having actual a lot of natural resources is a, can be a bad thing, Joe, because one, you just get lazy in that you rely on the natural resources. Thinking of a country maybe in present world that has abundant natural resources and just is fairly lazy as a result and allows that industry to essentially dominate bring in the yes bringing in the wealth and you don't bother doing anything with 
your other manufacturing industries because you think, oh, why should we bother? We can just dig stuff up. Mm-hmm. Well, so Japan wasn't able to just dig stuff up. The other disadvantage of that is if you do have stuff that can be dug up, countries like America want to take possession of you and take the stuff from you. So if you don't have it, then they don't want to take it off you is, a, is another sort of benefit of it. So it forces you to work on creating an industrial developmental capacity and places like America are not tempted to invade you and, and take your minerals. So there's that aspect. They also had an abundance of people. I was going Sorry. to say the Americans prefer to invade, stick in a puppet regime. Yes. And then and take, take the stuff. Yeah. Indeed. So they had that in their favour. They had to reconstruct from the war, but they weren't starting from zero. They had actually built up a, a civilization, and so they just had to reconstruct. They knew how to do it. And they had lots of American money. Yes. And, and the, well, and the, re, the other thing that they had in their favour was communist China and Russia on the doorstep. And the American fear that communist China and Russia would start to take over the world. So they wanted some friendly countries. There is a bulwark against the yellow peril, if you like, from communist China and from from Russia. So American protectorate for many years after the war anyway, wasn't it? Yes. So we're going to get into the detail of that. So there's a few advantages for Japan in that it was already industrial developmental via culture. It was spooked by what happened to China, so it ramped up. It lost the war, but it had no natural resources, so it's forced to rely on its people. It had a large population that was well-educated, and... It, it had the benefit of having a nearby threat so that the US would want to bolster it as a counter to that communist threat. Right. Just turning briefly to Taiwan, the native Taiwanese, most of whose ancestors had come from the mainland two or more centuries before and had experienced 50 years of total separation from the mainland under Japanese rule, saw the Chiang Kai-shek as foreigners and vice versa. So they were very Japanese by that point, the Taiwanese. And in South Korea, they had a tightly disciplined military dictatorship. They used that external threat of communism, North Korea, as its justification. And the, uh, the ruler, Park Chung-hee, uh, 1961, he had been educated in Japanese military academy, served in the Japanese army in Manchuria. He had studied the history of the Meiji Restoration and the role of the state in Japan's industrialization. And so he was a chief architect and driving force of Korea's development until his assassination in 1979. So that was from 61 to 79. Here's an interesting fun fact. Soon after he took power, he arrested leading businessmen and threatened them with jail for corruption unless they left for the United States and returned with export orders. Well, that's one way of doing it, isn't it? I, I make a living as a sales rep. I tell you that, that, that would really 
focus the mind on getting some orders. Mm-hmm. The dominant political philosophies of these countries emphasised order and nationalism more than liberty and free enterprise. So where the West likes to paint these countries as lovers of liberty and free enterprise, in fact, culturally, that They're was autocratic. The mm. Yeah, having known people who grew up in Singapore, mm. uh, that was very much an autocracy. Indeed. So before the Second World War, the United States had little presence in Northeast Asia, but after the war, containment of communism became a top priority and the US saw China and North Korea as a severe threat to the US sphere of influence. So the US poured in assistance to its three Asian allies, providing troops, economic advisors, political advisors, teachers, accompanied by large financial transfers. Essentially, dear listener, because of the threat of communist China and North Korea, the Americans pretty much did a textbook of, of how to help countries out and make them successful. On the downside, they did send them their Mormons. Yes. Did they send them the Mormons or did the Mormons just sneak in? Oh, the Mormons like, went anyway. Yeah. Just, it's like rats on sailing ships. is that mm-hmm. They're just there anyway. US advisors helped construct centralised top-level agencies that plan the use of very scarce capital and helped construct an effective civil service. During the American occupation of Japan, 45 to 52, the Japanese government instituted the most restrictive foreign trade and foreign exchange control system ever devised by a major free nation, and it did it with American blessing. Okay? So in the seven years immediately following the war, Japan had incredibly restrictive foreign protectionism. trade. Protectionism, exactly. The country's renaissance was helped much by the Korean War as well because Japan was the main source of American procurements for the Korean War. And the Japanese Prime Minister at the time later declared that the war was a gift of the gods because of the business that it generated. Incidentally... It was the Korean War that that basically emptied the US government's coffers and sent it into deficit where it had to break with the gold standard because it was the money spent on the Korean War that finally broke the back of, of the American budget. But I digress. Okay. The US government gave strong backing for ex- Appropriative land distribution in all three countries, meaning they helped with land reforms that enabled people to get a piece of land, ordinary people. And they provided support for industrialisation by curbing the landed classes and strengthening peasant support for the state so that the peasant population, the rural population, felt good about what was happening and didn't want to start a revolution. So they made it clear to the US that they would not sustain this indefinitely. And so the main periods of intense US involvement were basically from sort of 1948 to around 19, six, the mid-1960s. And so thanks to the threat of communist state expansion, the US wanted to protect its sphere of influence. It transferred huge resources to the Asian, Japanese, Taiwan Korean economies, and 
it allowed, provide lots, and it allowed these countries to run sustained account deficits that would never allow Latin America to run. And also, it gave the aids and loans in a form that did not dilute national ownership of the industrial sector. So the Japanese, Korean and Taiwanese people were allowed to actually own these enterprises. And again, that's not what was allowed in the global south where multinational country companies would come in and buy and own what had previously been owned by the local population. Right, and they also provided a market for all these goods that were being manufactured. So compare that to the Philippines. The US saw no existential threat. And they, in terms of being worried about communists, they just relied on a counterinsurgence strategy. And they didn't try and do any land reform and didn't do anything like the assistance that it did in Northeast Asia. That's why a place like the Philippines got stuck and basically you know, supported the Filipino government in its efforts to provide agricultural goods and raw materials, but not industrial goods. And because uh, it just wasn't worried about the threat, it didn't need the Philippines to be a strong country. Let me just see here. I can skip through that part, I think. I think I've already said that. And... basically goes on to say that the the governments in these countries targeted specific sectors and protected industry and encouraged industry, provided support and kept tabs of what industry were doing and set goals for them and said, well, we'll give you this, but you have to achieve these certain goals. And so it's quite a target where they said, we want to develop a certain type of industry and you five comp- companies, you're going to do it. We're going to keep an eye on you. You are going to create a little a, a sort of an industry group. We're going to provide from the government a secretary for that group and we're going to know what's going on. So really strong direction and monitoring by the government where they set targets and planned for these industries at the same time as allowing the individual companies some level of autonomy and market decision-making, if you like. So really clever targeting is essentially like targeting with not like the Russian version of a GOSS plan where they said exactly every step of the way what you have to do. It was a a more sensible form of targeting. And look, the article goes on, but I feel like I've been rabbiting on for long enough and I'm going to start repeating bits. The full notes are in the show notes that are given to the patrons. It does go on a fair bit on other things. But essentially that's it, Joe, is that the story of these countries was one of of heavy state involvement. Different interference by the Americans. And support by the Americans rather than crippling. And that's how they managed to break through. Interesting combination of factors. 
I particularly liked the factor of being unlucky enough to not have resources and unlucky enough to be next door to a communist threat actually turned out to be lucky things in that it it was the stuff that helped trigger the United States to work hard to beef them up properly. Very interesting. Well, I wonder if how much Western Germany was the same. Mm, indeed. Indeed. I mean, Japan and Germany, the debt was forgiven, unlike mm. the First World War where there was reparations. Indeed. Which they thought, even if it didn't, led into the poverty that led to Hitler coming to power. Indeed. Yep. Which is why they forgave and also basically invested heavily to rebuild, mm. whereas Europe had to repay the debts, to repay the loans for equipment that they used to fight the Second World War. Mm. Mm. Now, next week, I think I'll be able to get on to talking about the Plaza Accord. So things went swimmingly well for Japan until the Plaza Accord. And that was when the US said, hang on a minute, you guys are doing too good. And they changed some stuff. And that so was this after the 1980s where they bought up half of America? Yeah, exactly. So next week will be the Plaza Accord where the story is not so good for Japan, where in fact the US turns against them. So that'll be next week.